You may be surprised to learn that in the beginning of the 20th century, the majority of rural Ireland and Britain still had the steadfast belief in the existence of fairies. The first impression we might conjure in our mind is hearing them as a fairy, possibly as Tinkerbell, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Most stories are not about Tinkerbell. (laughs) From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. The term fairy comes from the word fay, which in turn derives from the old French word of fee. The word came in from the Latin uh, as feta. The fates were supernatural beings that played a major role in the fortunes of humans. Depending on where you want to take this and where you want to do your investigation work, the truth is the little people, as they are known, all types of fae are all over the world. They appear in Ireland, in Britain, obviously in the United States as well. I saw stories of uh, Aboriginal Australia. Australia, Germany. I mean, it's like everywhere there are some mentions. And again, as kind of our intro, when you first hear the word fairy, you might picture Walt Disney's beautiful Peter Pan with the flighty, fluffy little wings. Um, well, if nothing else, my, my looking into this topic, and of course I've been interested in fey topics for a while. Sure. You know, we, we, we often talk about our history playing D and D. So we're nerds. Uh, yeah. Tinkerbell and that, that depiction of the fey is, I mean, let's say definitely in the minority. Man. I think that's the censored child version for yeah, sure. Like, you know, we, we want to compare, you know, Tinkerbell be the disnified version of the original Grimm's fairy tales and and those brutal I mean, they 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 live up to the name yeah yeah well again we mentioned dungeons and dragons and as i said uh, you know bill and i actually both play but there's actually a lot of history that was pulled into that game uh, based upon mythology and lore but the word or the race i should say of fey actually covers a very wide spectrum uh, goblins for example, is one version of the Fae. They usually are envisioned to live in dark places. You know, people describe goblins as wearing clothes. They're, you know, poor kind of miner's garb, usually. Probably a variation on the goblin, of course, the red cap. Red cap. Which have the the name name by taking their caps and soaking it in the blood of their victims. Yes, yes, yes. And I know they're known to plague miners. Yep. Hobgoblins is another one. Uh, often in lore, if you research it, they live in farms and rural areas. They seem to love the warmth of a fire hearth. Uh, they may enter a home to get near one. Uh, on occasion, they can become nuisance, but they're generally good-natured unless someone offends them. Uh, they're actually part of the Brownie tribe, which, of course, Brownies is another uh, fae. They're kind of the, the loners, if you will. 
You know, it's it's hard to hear someone use the word brownie without thinking of a, a willow. True. And the little brownies and willow, the and little willow, tiny people. The they stole the baby. Uh, brownies, they often live in dark corners of a home, maybe a cupboard, a hollow tree, under the stairway of an old home. Uh, for the most part, they're considered helpful fairies. They maybe even keep things tidy and pick up. Legend is that they appreciate it if you leave out a bowl of cream as a reward, but... Uh, you know, if you upset them, they can become very violent. It seems to be, both of those items seem to be pretty common thread. If you leave out some kind of treat or, or, or something for them, uh, they're usually pretty pretty friendly. Sort of respect the, thing. They, they can be moved to violence and anger pretty easily. I think a lot of the fae can be that. And, I mean, there's touch of the dark fae as well as the good or the light fae. Uh, oh. We we talk about little people, but even in a you know if you look at Scandinavian lore and, and trolls, their trolls range from you know little people, little woodland trolls to all the way up to gigantic giants, monsters. Exactly. Um, and trolls, of course, is another race of the fae. Well, and I would think you know I, I'm kind of the kind of a pop culture person. The the movie Troll Hunter kind of depicts kind of where they're at. Like in a they're in Finland, Denmark, Sweden, places like that. They actually divert roads if they think they're going to impinge upon troll territory hmm. or fairy territory. There's a lot of references, of course, of trolls that live under bridges and stuff like that that some of the old uh, childhood tales come from. But if you go back in history, a lot of times a secluded old bridge was where you might spot a troll. You know, I like the idea of the troll bridge. I do, too. It, it rolls well with the Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> campaign for sure. But then, again, moving on, Pixies. Um, that's more of the Tinkerbell style. The, yeah, the Tinkerbell variety. Uh, they're associated mostly with England's West Country region, uh, Cornwall area. They're known to be mischievous creatures, uh, capable of doing good and or harm uh, to humans. Uh, they often were accused of making fresh milk go sour overnight. That seemed to be one of their little tricks that they did. They were the ones that you definitely wanted to leave gifts out for. Uh, it could be a sweet treat. Uh, it could be some dried flowers, piece of silk, maybe a piece of jewelry. Uh, but they pixies are kind of those mischievous ones that would tie your shoelaces together, you know, that kind <laughs> of stuff. And then, of course, we get into definitely Dungeons & Dragons style elves, dwarves. You know, elves are of Norse mythology. And it does mention dark elves and light elves. In Scotland, dark elves are known as trolls. Actually, we were talking about trolls. Uh, so in Scotland, that's what they're actually known for. In Danish lore, male elves appeared as old men. And if you got too close, they would open their mouths and cause sickness with their breath. I had never come across that. I thought that was interesting. Females danced in the moonlight, and young men were warned to steer clear uh, <laughs> of the charming of the elf that would steal their heart. Well, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we've heard some stories and, along those lines. Dwarves, of course. I think most people are familiar with dwarves. A particular fairies associated with Icelandic or Indian lore. Dwarves typically live within the earth and mined it for precious stones and metals. I mean, we're taking this right out of Lord of the Rings and, and Dungeons and & Dragons. Uh, the magical stones that un they unearthed gave them wisdom and the ability to become invisible, it actually mentioned. And it goes on. There's gnomes, there's nymphs. Uh, obviously, nymphs lived in the forest of Camelot uh, legend. 
You have the Lady of the Lake actually was a nymph, you know, that uh, kept the sword Excalibur. While you have kept it interesting and explained a little bit about it, I'm going to go dry. <laughs> go for it. But according to a 2018 survey, 44% of British people claim to have seen fairies. And then we'll, we'll break down the numbers a little more. Uh, 68% of those people who claim to have seen fairies were female. 27% of all sightings occurred in the wood. 27% of all sightings were described as unfriendly to downright hostile. Ooh. 35% of sightings were documented as short, just measuring a few seconds. Now, when they dug a little deeper and, and, and got some of these people to recount, found that most sightings vary pretty significantly from the Tinkerbell image that most people are familiar with. One witness described witnessing what they would call an all-night woodland rave with two male fairies, some sort of dwarf or goblin, and what they called mudmen, mud dancing men. to tribal drums. Uh, miners would talk about knockers that would cripple those who would not share their spoils. Oh, wow. Uh, there was a middle-aged woman who claimed to have witnessed a fairy hunting children by the side of the river, believing that the fairy's intention was to drown those children. I've heard stories of that, luring them into swamps or rivers to drown them. And then uh, just a little interesting side note here. They said a lot of times the fairies will communicate via telepathy kind of direct mind-to-mind communication. Hmm. Well, in my investigation, and I think actually you mentioned it, um, did you know there was actually a fairy investigation society? I know I didn't when Bill brought that up. Yeah. Um, It was kind of a semi-secret occult group, if you will. It was founded in Britain by Captain Sir Quentin Crawford and artist Bernard Slay in 1927. Uh, they were devoted to collecting evidence and information about the existence of fairies. The main objective was to just get any type of evidence whatsoever tangible to prove that fairies were real. Uh, it was believed that seeing fairies was actually a clairvoyant ability and that these things could connect us to nature and open the human soul to a higher metaphysical world. Uh, the ability to see a fairy was also connected to a religious belief with a connection to British spiritualism. That kind of dove down a rabbit hole that I wasn't expecting. Now, I believe I'm the one that kind of pointed you in the direction of this fairy society. You were. I was. Uh, I didn't know anything about it. I, I didn't look up anything about them. By the time I got to doing my, my research, I found enough stuff that interested me besides them. <laughs> I forgot all about them. But I knew you had looked into them a little bit. Yeah. Well, and the co-founder, the Sir Quentin Crawford, he kind of had an interesting take on things. Obviously, he believed in the spiritualism aspect of it. Um, he was a naval officer uh, from a very aristocratic background. Uh, while in the Navy, he picked up a fascination with wireless telephone communication. And in the 1920s, he began to experiment with this technology to contact the spirit world in general. Uh, he became very well known in the spiritual circles. In founding the Fairy Investigation Society, his role was to deliver the scientific means of collecting the evidence via his telephone technology. And then the artist, uh, Bernard Slay, would then kind of do the psychic means of contacting the fairies. So that's why they believe they were the best fit to start this society. The idea that even here in, in recent memory, you have an entire organization dedicated to pursuing these little folk the fairies and the fae there's and and a, and a guy like that you know with a military background and scientific mind yeah and, and he, he was trying really to use the best technology of the time 
Now, one other little tidbit, and then I'll leave the society alone because I know we've got a lot of other stuff, but I thought it was interesting. There's been a lot of members for the society through the years, and it kind of hit its heyday, went down, and then kind of back in the after World War II kind of faded, but then came back again in the 50s and even the 60s. But one of the uh, members that popped up, to me at least, was uh, Mr. Walt Disney himself. He was a member of the Ferry Investigation Society, certainly from 1956 to 57. However, in some of the interviews, uh, he does reference that he was interested as much as 10 years prior, uh, but just didn't join the society. Um, He wanted to dive into that and actually took a trip to Ireland to experience Irish history and gain this folklore for a storyboard research uh, when he began exploring the idea of a film that he planned on doing on the little people. Uh, This was about 1946 era. Uh, He wanted to focus on leprechauns and fairies in particular, and he himself mentioned that he had a very strong interest in mythology of fairies. Now, the only thing that I'm aware he came out with, of course, you have Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Oh, but Tinkerbell. Darby O'Gill and the Little People. I think that was a Disney movie. Okay. And I might be wrong on the title on that, but I want to say it was about, you know, like Irish folklore and leprechauns and whatnot. But he definitely spent, let's say, a decade of research, and I thought that was kind of interesting. When we when we started talking about this topic, I know that, that you had developed an interest in a couple of specific aspects, which I think we'll talk about, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fairy, you know, society. And then I think we discussed Cottingly Fairies, which I think we'll touch on a little later. We'll touch on that later. But my kind of thing, you know, when I was looking at this, is I wanted to look at some modern encounters with the Fae and little people and and, and the like. And I was honestly surprised by the number of supposedly first-hand accounts that I was able to, to locate. Now, mind you, some of these go back to 1956, but I think the most recent one I've got is 2010. And maybe relatively even later, new. relatively new, uh, and so I just kind of sorted these chronologically. I thought I might go through those a little bit. The first one I've got here is December fifteenth, nineteen fifty-six. Alfred Horn in New Hampshire. Obviously, times were a little, you know, simpler then. He was out harvesting trees in the woods. He thought he was alone when he spotted a figure that was kind of watching him from off in the distance, and that seems to be a common thread. They're being watched. Uh, this figure was about two foot tall had green skin and what he described as elephant-like floppy ears. Hmm. Now, he figured no one was going to believe that he'd seen this thing, so he tried to grab it, at which point in time it let out a blood-curdling scream slash shriek, <laughs> which scared Horn so much that he just took off for the house. <laughs> He's like, that's it, I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm envisioning like a Dobby-like character out of I mean, Harry it kind of sounds like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll skip up to May of 1977, uh, an issue of Fate magazine where a lady named uh, Cynthia Montfiore relates a couple of encounters that she had near her mother's home in Somerset, England. Uh, they were in the garden. Her mother was teaching her how to do rose clippings from a, from a tree, cuttings, when her mom kind of put a finger to her lips to, to hush her a little bit and pointed to uh, one of the blooms on the, the tree. And in the bloom, she said she saw a six-inch tall woman, in her words, uh, with wings like a dragonfly. Skin was pale pink, and she had silver-colored hair, and she was pointing a small wand into the middle of the flower. They watched her for a couple of minutes, said her, her little dragonfly wings beat like the wings of a hummingbird, and then she's just simply vanished. That sounds very Cottingly fairies yeah. aspect. Uh, now later, sitting under the same tree reading a book, she uh, felt that she was being watched, 
She looked up and saw what she said was a quote-unquote sturdily built figure uh, watching her from a distance. Said he was wearing a one-piece brown suit, which clothing comes up a lot when people describe these these creatures. Right. It ran across the lawn away from her to a young fir tree and seemed to disappear. Now she says he was about 18 inches tall. Uh, of course, in her curiosity, wish she went over to investigate the tree and, and found nothing out of place, nothing unusual. Now we'll go to uh, a summer evening in 2005. A uh, gentleman identifies himself only with the initials JF. He was visiting a friend's house in Chicora, Pennsylvania. I may have that name wrong. Uh, they, the house was in a thickly wooded area. They were sitting on the back porch watching the sunset, enjoying you know, good times as, as friends do. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they, they heard some noise near some potted plants on the, the deck. Uh, the deck's eliminated by a single, you know, they say spotlight in the description. I'm assuming kind of a floodlight situation. So they look over to these potted plants and something flies about the plants. They, they're kind of, oh, they, they're taken aback for a moment. They, <laughs> they, it was about a 12-inch tall figure, which they describe as having a human head with pointed ears. Oh, wow. And it seemed like they, it had something wrapped around her body. And it kind of shot up, kind of paused in midair, and then opened bat-like wings which they described uh, as membranous, uh, stretching between the fingers, from the fingers to the toes. So I imagine almost like a uh, like a flying squirrel, if you will. Okay, yeah. Kind of. And they said you could see, like, the veins in the wings, but they said kind of shaped like a butterfly. In, in, so I'm assuming the outer edges were maybe rounded like a butterfly wing. Uh, that she hovered there for a moment before flying off into the woods. Wow. So she's, again, kind of a pixie you know, Tinkerbell-ish. And then we're, we'll go to summer of 2006, which these are just little quick anecdotes. Sure, sure. But uh, two folks enjoying a pint in a bar near Evesham, which is in England, which, uh, you know, a couple folks enjoying a pint. <laughs> uh, Daily know, affair. We don't know how many pints they had enjoyed. <laughs> uh, they thought they saw something unusual, so they kind of looked out the window, and there in the garden of the pub, they saw a small creature they said was roughly the size of a human toddler, uh, had weird gangly limbs, and uh, kind of took off across the the garden to climbed over the fence and then disappeared in the field beyond. Now they they actually called it a goblin. They described it as having skin that was nut brown in color and uh, just absolutely naked. Hmm. So, you know, that, that's Dobby just, needed a sock. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a handful of little short, you know, one-off anecdotes. I don't know if you had anything similar in your. Well, the only one I came across, and actually I believe you came across it later, was the uh, garden gnome I'm gonna incident. I'm going to tell you, that's a story that, that out of all the stories I found, I really like this one. And it's, it's there's a little more to it Yeah, like when you really dig into it. And the fact that uh, that story is actually witnessed by two people, two, two different people encountering the same creature over the span of years. Yes, over a period of time with very... Similar and, and multiple witnesses on both occasions. Yeah, yeah. So if if you want to jump into that one, yeah, go this ahead. This is kind of my 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 big contribution here. This is this was like I said, my favorite story that I found. This story is of like we said, multiple encounters near Porterville, California, by the Tool River. This is a uh, kind of in the country, kind of away from the hustle and bustle. The first encounter was in March of 2010 with a, a woman named Tammy and her three children. The property, I guess, has an old barn on it, mm-hmm. and she said they started to feel like they were being watched from the old barn after they'd been there for a little while. It seemed like animals would shun that building. You know, they had some some ducks and some chickens and, and like a family dog. One family had a yeah, they had a family dog, and the dog you would, 
I mean, just totally resisted even going nearby that area. Well, well, after being there for a little while, she noticed the numbers of chickens and ducks would start to decrease slowly. And they never could figure out what was happening to them. They couldn't find any remains. They didn't find feathers. They didn't know if, you know, they didn't think it was foxes or anything like that. They, they never found any evidence that, that these animals were being attacked. So one night, they were coming home from grocery shopping. They're bringing in their groceries. They've got armloads of food. When, when Tammy notices the movement, and then she hears what she described as a very freaky, very evil-sounding laugh. This part I remember. Kind of a weird, creepy cackle. In the dark. Can't you imagine? In the imagine? dark. Yeah. Arm full of groceries. You, you feel kind of vulnerable. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? So she looks in the direction, and she sees a small humanoid creature that she described as a gnome. And I'm going to give this description once, but it applies in the second story as well. They describe almost the exact same thing. He's two to three feet tall. He's got baggy black pants and wearing a gold shirt. Got a salt and pepper beard on his face. He's got a long red pointed hat. And I want a red, red. pointed hat. Red cap. Uh, he's got a bulbous nose, deep set eyes, and an ear to ear grin filled with ugly brown teeth that are pointed or jagged. I think even shark like is how it's described. So he's an unsettling figure. A to face see. only a mother could love. As to be expected. They drop their groceries and they run. <laughs> they take off for the house. Now that they've seen the creature she's trying to like comfort her kids trying to calm them down and you can just see the top of his little hat go by in the window you know the front it's of, the house, like the back of the house like he's mocking them chasing them yeah like he's trying to yeah. freak them out now didn't he also at least in the story i remember he tried to lure the the boy maybe the youngest one away from the mom now that that may be that that w- I didn't find in in the story I found I didn't talk I, about I, that. I know it was the same time frame in the same area, and I believe at one other occasion, the little boy was out playing in the yard, and I think the sister was out there. Maybe she'd come in, and they went out looking for the little boy, and they couldn't find him. Now that may be the second encounter because I believe Tammy only had daughters. Okay, so this first story may be. You, that may be part of the second encounter. But he lured this little boy like down towards the river and. It didn't seem like for good reasons, you know. Probably not. Yeah. Not not with the the descriptions here. Tammy and her family continue to hear chuckling, creepy chuckling and stuff from the old barn and and to be uncomfortable around that one. And they they moved in in pretty short order after that. We're out of here. Now, the second encounter, and and I don't remember the name of the website off the top of my head, so you have to forgive me on that, but the second encounter was the first one that the guy that ran this website had heard of. And then he got to thinking that he had heard this story once before. And so he actually connected these two stories and brought these two families together to realize that they had lived on the same property, years separated from each other, and they had both encountered the same thing. So this story comes later, and I, I didn't have a date for it, So, but it's after 2010. Okay. So we get a little closer to where we're at now. And this was the Thomas family, which I believe the mom's name was Charlie. And I think they did have like a son and a daughter. So this may that be may the have family been what I was remembering. Of. Okay. Now again, I didn't find anything where he tried to lure anybody off, but uh, basically the way this one starts is about three o'clock in the morning. The family is Charlie says she was awoken by the most hideous sound. It was a horrible, raspy, gurgling sound. It's the most hideous sound you could you hear you could ever hear. So they look out their bedroom window and they see something by the pond and it's holding a garden gnome. They have a pond in their yard and this thing is holding a garden gnome. <laughs> I don't know if he's just like, yeah, I mean, you can see the resemblance. What I don't know why he's got it, but he's <laughs> this got the best it. you got. Right here. Yeah. Well, he's holding a garden gnome and he's standing by their pond. Now they're looking out there. They're, they're, they're looking at this thing. It's illuminated in the moonlight. And at some point it becomes aware that it's being watched. It's, it's kind of there casually. Like it was obviously trying to get their attention. 
And then once it realizes it has their attention, it kind of looks at the window, reaches into the pond, snatches a koi out of the pond, and swallows it whole. Oh, wow. Now, they had had koi. They had been trying to stock this pond with koi for a while. And every time they would, they would lose a few of them. Like, and then, then they'd come in. One day, all their fish would be gone. They had been going through this for a little while. So much like with the ducks and the chickens of the previous mm-hmm. family, this this little fellow was... He's eating well. He's eating them. Now, uh, they observe this. This this happens periodically where he shows up in the pond holding some kind of lawn ornament and he eats one of their fish. <laughs> like he's doing... Like he's taunting them. Exactly. So they figure, well, we're going to move the lawn ornaments inside. We're going to take the koi and we're going to just put them in a tank in the house. And then he's not going to, you know... He's, he? he's, he's going to get bored. Yeah. He's going to leave. Yeah. Well, he didn't like that. So he shows up one night, 3 o'clock, and they hear, again, this most keening, awful... Like, he's screaming. He's raging. He's he's out there. Like, they like wake the whole neighborhood if they had Challenge neighbors. accepted. And they look out there, and he's stomping around by the pond, and he's pointing at the house, and he's, he's freaking out. You know, at one point in time, they tried to challenge him, and he kind of grinned at him and laughed at him and shot him the bird, even. <laughs> so he's, he's got some modern sensibility about him. But he just starts running around the house the same as before, the tip of his little red hat, you know, going around the outside of the house. And the dad's upstairs with the wife, and, and he remembers they've got a doggy door. So he charges down into the kitchen to check the doggy door, and the family dogs are barking at the doggy door, and it's like something's trying to get in, and he slides down the lock on that. And then he's like, oh, the windows upstairs are open. I don't know if it can get up there. So he runs back up to close the kid's bedroom window and stuff like that. And and uh, and much like the previous family, they, they kind of say, We've okay, enough. enough is enough. We're, we're moving out of here. We're tapping out. And like I said, at a certain point, these two families come together and realize, like, hey, we lived in the same house. We had the same encounter with the same thing. Start comparing notes and, and even, there's too many uh, familiarities. Yeah, the Thomas family even said, like, they always felt uncomfortable with that old barn on the property. And then I guess, I don't know if it's represented both families or somebody else, but they went to the, they went back to the house. The barn's still there. You know, they, they went and knocked on the door. The lady that owns the property comes out. She's a little curious. You know, she's out in the country. You know, people visiting her. And they asked her if she had any unexplained activity happening around the house, especially related to the old barn. And they said she was very uncooperative after that. So whether it was one of those, like, I've had something going on, I don't want to talk about it, or, or what. You guys or are a bunch, she, of, n- bunch of nutballs yeah. on maybe my she front just didn't want to be just, mixed yeah, up away. with a bunch of weirdos. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I found that story to be, I mean, just a little creepy. Yeah, and connected. That That's the cool part, was it's not just a and yeah. single event. It, it multiple, went on for... Multiple witnesses in two separate occasions. At least five years apart, or yeah. whatever, let's say. Well... When we first started talking about doing this podcast, one of the things that uh, popped up on my radar, and, and I was shocked, I guess disappointed even, that some of my D&D group that I play with was not familiar with what the Cottingly Fairies were. And so I believe I got to talking to you, and I was like, man, maybe we, we, need, we need to do something on the Cottingly Fairies. And see, that, that kind of caught me by surprise, because the Cottingly Fairies, you know, even in the mid-90s, there's a feature film yes. maybe 2000s early 2000s yep. but there's a, a whole movie about it it seriously the cotton leaf fairies give you a little history basically started in 1917 uh it's when two photographs came forward they were taken by two cousins uh over in england elsie wright and a francis griffiths yep 
they were two young cousins who lived in Cottingley, uh, near the area of Bradford in England. They sparked the interest of an author of that time frame, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yep. And he had been very open into metaphysics, uh, mythology, just a, a well-opened mind, you might say. And you got to remember now, this is 1917. There was the fairy society. There was all of this stuff. It was kind of a spiritualistic movement. These two photographs just pop up. And at first there was only two. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle just full-fledged accepted, we now have physical proof that fairies exist. Now, again, you got to remember... 1917 cameras back then weren't anything like what we've got now yeah and one of the first questions you might ask was well you know how did this two young cousins you know the ages of like eight and 12 or whatever get a hold of a camera well one of the girls father was a photographer and they would often go out and play on on the hills and by the streams and they'd come back with these fanciful stories of playing with the fairies and, of course, the mom, and, and I'm assuming, based upon what I'm reading, servants, uh, they were pretty well-to-do. They didn't believe them, of course. And so the girls took it upon themselves, well, we're going to go borrow Daddy's camera, and we're going to bring you back footage, which they did. And they brought back these two very clear photographs with the girls in the foreground and the... I'll call them pixie Tinkerbell type. Yeah, they were the, the Tinkerbell variety. Yeah, back in the background, kind of playing in the flowers. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had uh, heard about this in a local newspaper, and he had been commissioned to write an article about fairies in the Strand magazine uh, of Christmas of 1920. So, you know, 1917 to 1920, he finds out about this a few years later. He goes over, he interviews the girls, gets permission to use the photographs. I think that's where they were actually first printed, besides a couple local newspapers. And the war, it just took the world by storm. I mean, here, again, 1920s, we've got actual footage of fairies. People started coming to their houses. They were offering money to be able to go out and to try to see the fairies. And, of course, teenage girls at this point in time, I think they were enjoying the limelight. Um, the family was a bit awestruck that there was so many that wanted to believe that would make the trip, uh, even from the United States all the way over to England to have a chance to go see these fairies. And I mean, this went on for several years and this was probably one of the best documented, well-known events. And that's what shocked me so much that today's society, there's so many people didn't know it. As you mentioned, I think they did a movie about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was a little old for the film at the time. It's definitely directed at girls of that age. But even I was fascinated enough with the topic that I you know, I watched the movie. Now, in the end, I think they, they had five total pictures, mm-hmm. which if you look up the Wikipedia article on uh, Cottingly Fairies, it does have all five pictures. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can look at them. They're out there to be seen. I'll, I'll touch on that fifth photo here in just a little yeah. bit. But Doyle... As we had mentioned, he was kind of a spiritualist, and he was so enthusiastic about the photographs, but he already started getting backlash. You know, these are fake. These are farces. They've been doctored up. Well, he actually paid, I guess you would call them engineers or specialists from Kodak, Kodak Camera Company, 
to take the pictures in and see if they had been touched up or altered whatsoever. And you have to remember, I mean, technologically speaking, we live in a day where Photoshop and, and all that, you know, you can fake just about anything. Now, when they examine the photos, even at that, at that point, all Kodak is going to be able to tell them is that photo was taken, basically. Yeah. Like, it's taken, there's no, you know, light trickery or what have you, but they can't get into, you know, what was it, techniques like double exposure and things like that. Right. You know, it was still a new art. Yeah, they, I mean, they they can just basically tell you that the photo was taken. <laughs> well, the officials from Kodak uh, they did review the photos. All members uh, proclaimed that the photos had not been touched up or altered in any way, just as Bill was saying, but concluded that still wasn't hundred percent proof of the existence of fairies. Yeah, so it kind of backfired. It didn't give him the uh, the boom that he wanted to to stomp out the disbelievers. But interest in the Connolly Fairies kind of gradually started to decline after about 1921. Both the girls got married, lived abroad for a time, uh, doing their own thing. But yet the photographs kind of continued to resurface from time to time, sparking the public imagination. And in 1966, a reporter from the Daily Express newspaper uh, tracked down Elsie, who by then had returned to the United Kingdom. Now, Elsie had left open the possibility that she believed she had more photographs in her thoughts and that the media, once again, would become interested in the story. That kind of fizzled out. But there was a total of five photographs that kind of come to surface. Now, she kind of led them to believe that there might be as many as ten, maybe even a dozen. However, to this point, I am unaware that any others have surfaced. The only ones, like I said, the Wikipedia article has five, and that, that fifth photo... You know, we want to talk about the deathbed confession here. Yes, and I'm going to get into that. It was the early 1980s. Elsie and Francis, now both either in their 80s or approaching their 80s, admitted finally the photographs were fake. I think they were like cutouts on stick pins. They used cardboard cutouts of fairies copied from a popular children's book at that time. And if anyone would have done the research. And again, it was a totally different time. Things weren't as easily available, obviously not the internet, but you can look at the photographs and go back and you can absolutely see it is the exact same lithograph image that the girls cut out, put on little sticks and stationed around. Now to take they, the they do insist that that fifth picture though, they insist that the fifth one that was, was not fake. So weird. To me, yeah, admit they're all fake. Except well, these are for all one. fake, except for the last one. Now it's real. Now I, I gotta admit, when you look at the first few and you, you think about their confession, you can see it. Now I did look at the fifth one. I blew it up a little bit to kind of get a better view. It does look a little different from the other photos. My take on it would be double exposure. Mm-hmm. It does look like they're because they have a degree of transparency, even. Yes. So. But it doesn't look the same as the other pictures. I will say that. Well, now part of the reason for that could be uh, there were actually two cameras used. And they believed the latter picture or pictures, as the one girl said there were more that never surfaced, may have been taken by the second camera, which you know may have made it look a little different. But the pictures, as well as the two cameras, are currently on display in the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford, England. And as of December 2019, a third camera, they said, that was used was being acquired uh, to be completing the ex- exhibition. So now, I got to say, 
either the family, how do I say this politely? The family was coming up with cameras to sell possibly to make more money, <laughs> but we've talked about five photographs and three cameras now. So it's like, okay, we're almost for a different camera for every picture. Yeah. Unless there are truly more photographs that are out there and they still have not surfaced as of yet. And I believe both uh, young girls have since passed away. Um, Elsie died in 1988, and uh, Francis actually passed away in 1986. So we may may never know that aspect of it. Yeah, it's, like you said, it's kind of a weird thing to, to say that most of them are fake and then still stand on that one well, being why? legit. Why would you... I mean, just stand your ground and say, yes, this fifth one is, is real. I, the, I, I still don't get that. Now the thing is, you know, in, in this day and age where everybody's carrying a very robust camera slash video recorder slash whatever you Phone. want in their pocket, <laughs> you know, we, we don't see pictures and videos. Right, right. And, I mean, it goes back to the Bigfoot argument, the UFO argument, whatever. You know, we don't have good pictures or you videos. You can't use the excuse, well, I didn't yeah. have a camera. I mean, back in those days, to have a camera... Oh, it you was know, you undertaking. You were toting around a, a, a heavy piece of machinery. Yeah. yeah. Now, before we close out, I do want to kind of go back. I'm, As you know, I'm kind of more the historian buff of this. But I wanted to go into the fairy belief in Europe overall. Uh, we have already said, you know, Tinkerbell. Uh, yeah, we're going to throw that one out the window. <laughs> that's, that's kind of childhood uh, censorship, if you will. But in Ireland, the belief that the fairies are actually spirits of the dead who have returned to provide warnings and wisdom. Um, in Wales, fairies were known as the, and I will butcher this, I'm sure, the Twilith Teg. And unlike the stereotypical view of fairies, Welsh natives believe these are ancestral spirits. And they believe they're like six foot tall, normal human size, not little people whatsoever. I read some, some sightings like that. Uh, over in Cornwall, fairies are people who, uh, I, I like this one, were deemed not good enough to go to heaven, but not bad enough to go to hell. Uh, they're shapeshifters, I but they that. often become smaller with every time that they make a transaction, that, that transition. Too bad for heaven, too good for hell thing. That that applies if you look at the lore of a lot of spook lights That's in very America. True. That, that same kind of logic applies to those. Yeah, yeah. There's a belief out there, if you dig deep enough or go down the rabbit holes, that the Fae are actually angels or demons. Uh, and it's just the mask or name that they have been given. Fairies are thought in some aspects to be the lower end of angelic ranks, and they have come to watch over us. In Gaelic-speaking regions of Scotland even today, the belief is that fairies are fallen angels. We do know that the first mentions of fairies was way back in the 14th century. And according to the writers, one is Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh, these beings were capable of enchantment and illusion. They were commonly understood that fairies either lived underground or in forts or earth mounds. As a result, sites such as Fairy Hill, Fairy Mound, and Fairy Forts have earned their names, which are all popular designations, if you will, in Europe and England. Even here in the United States, I thought this was interesting. For example, the Cherokee Indians of North Carolina refer to fairies as Yunai Tasadi. I probably butchered that. They're little people, effectively elf-like natives. The Cherokees have great respect for these elves as they believe they're spirits belonging to an age before man, similar to the race of giants, which is another podcast we'd done previously. And lastly, in Germany. 
they believe the Fae are evil spirits uh, that work in mines and cause havoc. Whenever miners heard the knocking on the walls and the rocks, they believed they could be kobolds, which is another race of the Fae. And they knew that they needed to cease work immediately and evacuate the tunnels and the mines. One Hungarian author saw the outlines of a tiny creature with a vague resemblance to a human, and he described it as black and grotesque, but also kind of like covered with coal dust. Uh, you know, mining again, kobolds, gnomes, that type of deal. So again, Tinkerbell, no offense, we're throwing you out the window. I mean, I'm not a, an expert in mining. But I'm thinking, you know, when you hear the knocking, you know it's time to get out. Couldn't that, that superstition belief being what it was? Couldn't that, that, I mean, it seems to me that it could have just been the sounds of the beginning stages of a cave-in. And I guess and whatever your saved warning. your life yeah. at that point, if you wanted to believe it was a kobold uh, telling you that, or possibly just the rocks getting ready to crush yeah. you from beneath. What, whatever but, it took to get you out of the hole. Whatever works, I guess. So, um, but. Yet again, folks, we want to thank everybody that's joining in, and we just wanted to share this as yet another example of things and topics you might find on Nightmares of the Lost Highway. I would like to thank uh, Alex Tudor, who has been helping us uh, a lot uh, with our endeavors on this podcast. You can call him our producer at this point, I think. Our producer, electronic recording technician. Uh, um, he's uh, the one that's setting up all the mics and the hardware in the background. And then Bill Weirs is going through taking his time to try to clean and edit this up and uh, give us the best possible version that we can present to you folks. want to thank everybody involved with that.